Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show. Guess what? 699. Yes, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yeah, sure. 699. Wow. You only just kind of rock up and do they kind of open up the web page and... Yeah, you know, I'm not saying I don't take notice of the numbers, but I certainly took no notice of this one. Man, yes. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is The Moon and the Mahasti by Peter Adrian Baravesh. Now, I hope I'm, Peter, I hope I've got that one right. This is a fantastic story. It was originally appeared in a slightly different form in Holy Cow, SF Stories from the Centre of the World, Holy Cow Publishing in 2019. And it's that time again, we've also got our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back Genre History. So we'll jump straight into the main fiction, The Moon and the Mahasi, by Peter Adrian Beveresh. And I'll give you a little heads up about Peter. Peter is an Iranian-American musician, writer, editor, audio producer and narrator. For these endeavours, he has won the Miller and the British Fantasy Awards. He has been nominated for the Hugo, the Ignite, Stabby and the Aurora Awards. Aurora Awards, his interactive novels, Heaven's Revolution, A Lying Among the Cypress, is forthcoming from Choice of Games, and his essay, Pearls from a Dark Cloud, Monsters in the Persian Myth, is forthcoming in the Oxford University Press Handbook of Monsters in Classical Myth. When he isn't crafting, crooning, or consuming stories, Peter can usually be found hurtling down a mountain, sipping English breakfast, and sharpening his farce. 
Now, this story is narrated by Tahrez Sahavi. Now, I'll give you a little heads up about Tahrez. Tahrez Sahavi is grateful to be part of the Iranian diaspora for the opportunity that affords her to share the art with the world. When she's not teaching wine tasting, belly dancing, or flying trapeze, she writes about medieval history with brown people. More at twodrunkhistorynerds.com. She's thrilled to help get this story out into the world at a time when Iranian women urgently need people to remember they exist and are full human beings too. Zan, Zanjiji, Azadai, Women, Life, Freedom. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Moon and the Mahasti by Peter Adrian Beravesh. Read to you by Tahere Safavi. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A breath of stale air greets me as I step through the entrance to the archives, an unpleasant blend of vellum and must and smug superiority. I clutch my application to my chest, careful not to wrinkle the precious papers. Before leaving the house this morning, I wrapped them in an old roussari to shield against the wind and grit on the long walk to the university, and to hide them from Baba's prying eyes. You want to end up like your mother? She thought she was smart, too. Near barren bookshelves lined the walls of the cramped room, their primary purpose evidently to collect cobwebs. A young man hunches over a solitary desk in the center, writing furiously, his prominent nose, long lashes, and light brown skin marking him as Votani, same as me. His kafton hangs loose from bony shoulders, the fabric patched and threadbare, his drab dull bands showing similar signs of wear. His beard's a black bramble that hasn't seen comb or oil in at least a season. A dim astral chemical lantern dangles above him. He doesn't acknowledge me as I approach. I clear my throat. Baba will throw a fit if I'm late again. The young man holds up a finger. Hang on. His speech carries traces of a northern accent, but at least he isn't speaking Cherie. The scratch of his reed pen grates on my nerves. 
I try to make out what he's writing, but the inverted letters are as legible as henpecks, not at all like the elegant script Mama taught me. I lean in for a closer look. Across the entire page, multiple pages, in fact, he's drawn a Khalikraft, the kind of flying ship the Sherry used to sail across the stars and conquer our world, the kind you only find these days in adventure books by Sorush the Explorer, filled with sorcerers and divs. Around the edges of the drawing, a number of elaborate, messy equations have been either abandoned or scratched out. The man scribbles a few final figures near the ship's propulsion mechanism, then sets the pen down, gray eyes inquisitive behind a battered pair of spectacles. His gaze takes in the stylish drape of my dress, the reckless slant of my roussari. It settles on the parcel cradled in my arms. Building a ship? I ask. Mama used to warn me against taking such a teasing tone, especially with men. But I can't help myself. The man colors. Just passing the time... He slides the pages together so they no longer resemble much of anything. How can I help you? I'm here to enroll, I say. I was told this is the building for woman applicants. I was also told the same thing about the library. And the lecture hall. And the dining hall. It is? I unwrap the application and hand it to him, biting my lip to keep from crying out at the way his fingers leave ink prints on the pages. I've spent weeks preparing each document, writing by the light of the moon while Papa sleeps, making sure my proofs are beyond reproach, all so this distracted man can hold my entire future in his hands. He shuffles through the papers absently, then squares them on the desk and lays them flat. Mahasti, he says, squinting at my signature on the first page. From ma, meaning moon, and hasti, meaning existence. I grip my teeth. I know what my own name means. He adjusts his spectacles. Have you heard what the Sherry say about the moon? I've heard, I say. Look, is there anything else I need in order to... Of course, ma can also mean beautiful. I offer him a withering scowl. It isn't the first time I've heard this either. His eyes widen. I didn't mean, he stammers. I, I wasn't trying to... He thrusts out a solemn hand. Farhod, son of Bezod. I give it a perfunctory shake, trying not to let any of the ink on his fingers stain mine. Mahasti. When I don't say more, he releases my hand. So... I begin again, acutely aware of just how much time it will take to walk to the bazaar, buy Baba's supplies, and return home. Will you accept my application? He shuffles through the papers once more. Looks like you're missing an essay. Which one? I've checked everything a dozen times. There isn't a single pen stroke out of place. Woman applicants are required to write ten pages attesting that they are of sound mind and will do nothing to distract the male students. The words tumble out reluctantly, as if he's reciting a decree someone made him memorize. You can't be serious. It's ridiculous, I know, he says, but may the sacred radiance set me aflame. It's university policy. He frowns. Applicants of other genders have it even worse if you can believe it. I can. Why has no one mentioned this until now? It's new, he smiles sympathetically. I'm guessing it's meant to discourage anyone who isn't a man from applying. I resist the urge to roll my eyes. What astounding powers of deduction. Careful, I can almost hear Maman say. 
The rest of your application looks quite strong. Either he's ignoring my sarcasm or he missed it entirely. Write the essay, come back tomorrow, and I'll see what I can do. He reassembles my application papers and hands them back to me. By the time I finish wrapping them in the Rusari, his attention has already returned to his drawing, which he's spread across the desk once more. As I reach the door, I can hear the furious scratch of his pen resume. You're late, Baba says in Cherry as I slip into the house, kicking the dust from my sandals. Did you at least get a good price on lamb like I asked? He stands too close, his breath reeking of arag. I did. I reply in Cherry as well, my tongue tripping over the still unfamiliar words. And everything else you asked for? Perhaps tomorrow I should pick up some dates. I could make you a cake. Anything to put him in a good mood. We can't afford to be frivolous, he says. I shake my head when he turns away, as if he knows the state of our ledgers. I work myself raw to balance our income and expenses, all so he can squander every extra dinar on outlawed alcohol that costs ten times what it used to. Make me some stew. Of course, I want to say. I'll just whip up a quick crash in the few minutes left before I have to open the apothecary. Instead, I stifle a sigh and get to work. Baba sits back down to his book of sherry grammar, a bottle of arag close at hand. Not so much as a thank you. But it didn't threaten me either, which I'll count as a victory. The book is part of his march towards assimilation. It isn't enough that he destroyed our shrine to the sacred radiance, the one Mama taught me to pray before. It isn't enough that he insists I cover my hair with a rusari, a perfectly fine custom when it isn't thrust upon you, even if we're alone in the house. No, he wants us to be like them, like the animals who took Mama. He tells me it's out of love. Once the stew is simmering, the front room pleasantly scented with saffron, cardamom, and shambalile, I slink into the back and tuck the application papers under my bedroll. I have a long afternoon ahead of me, and I don't want them damaged, or worse, discovered. When I return to the front room, the pot is almost boiling over. I curse under my breath. Language, Baba says sharply. I mutter an apology, stirring the stew. Of course, he's only concerned about propriety. You should be grateful, he says. Not every father is as forgiving as I am. Here we go. He stands, swaying behind me, empty bottle in hand. My body clenches, and I chart the safest path to the door, calculating how quickly I can reach it. I feel his breath on my neck. You know, he says... The Sherry claimed the moon sprang from the desert one warm winter night when the skies burst open and lightning lashed the scarlet sands. He's paraphrasing his favorite passage from their scriptures. He's already too muddled to be this articulate on his own. They say she fled this world to wander the Cheli, that endless black expanse where the stars shudder and shine like tiny lanterns. She fled to escape the clutches of the sun. But she was caught. He punctuates each sentence with a finger jabbed into my shoulder. Now she suffers just punishment for her wicked ways, condemned to chase the sun across the heavens, tending to his every need, a lesson for women like you. What do you say to that? I say nothing. There's no answer I can give that will end in anything other than an argument. Just like your mother, he growls. I ought to whip you for your insolence. 
Before I can respond, he hurls his bottle at the wall behind me. It shatters, spraying a rag into the stew, onto the floor, all over my dress, the aniseed stench drenching everything. Broken glass fills the pot. I check myself for cuts and am relieved to find none. But I'll have to start the stew from scratch. Baba takes another bottle from the cupboard and returns to his desk as if nothing has happened. I retrieve the broom and dutifully begin sweeping. After the last of our customers has come and gone, after I've prepared Baba's dinner, cleaned the dishes, and swept the floor of every speck of dust and glass, long after Baba has drunk himself into a stupor, I creep into the back room and retrieve my papers. I stay up into the gray hours of the morning, writing by the light of the moon, writing until my hand is ready to fall off, writing until I've found the perfect words to convince the men who run the university that I am worthy of admission. When my eyelids are so heavy I can barely keep them open, I hide the application once more, praying to the sacred radiance that it will be enough. I return to the archives to find the same young man, the same drawing of a ship spread across his desk. When he finally looks up, his expression is a mixture of confusion, concern, and pleasant surprise. You look terrible, the man says, then blushes. I mean tired. You look tired. I've hardly slept. I say, unable to muster a more cutting response. I drop my application, Rusari and all, onto the desk next to his drawing. Do I have everything I need now? Let's have a look. He adjusts his spectacles but doesn't take his eyes off me. I... I hope you can forgive my lack of tact yesterday. I don't get many visitors. This post is one of the quietest on campus. More reward than punishment, if you ask me. Punishment? I repeat, in spite of myself. Punishment for what? Drawing in class. You're a student? <laughs> Until they expel me, he grins. Or I graduate, whichever comes first. I can't decide if his indifference is endearing or infuriating. Not everyone can be so cavalier. About my application, I say. Yes, sorry. He unwraps my papers and spreads them across the desk, knocking some of his own onto the floor in the process. Let's see. You're applying to the school of mathematics? He makes a face. But math is so tedious. It takes a special kind of mind to master it. I'm surprised to hear Mama's words coming out of my mouth. What do you study? His eyes twinkle in the lantern light. Astralchemy? Don't you need math for that? I find it's less about calculation and more about imagination, he says. The path to the stars is strewn with dreams. Surish the Explorer. I suppress a smile. You've read him? My mother gave me a book of his adventures. She used to read them to me. Before. When she was the one under Papa's thumb. So, you want to sail the stars? It sounds childish when you say it aloud. He blushes again and a flicker of panic dances across his face. His eyes dart down to his drawing. Before I can think better of it, I pick up one of the pages from the floor. Give that back, the man says, all traces of good humor gone. I look closer, past the scrapped calculations. This isn't just a drawing. It's a schematic, and he isn't trying to build a Haley craft. He's trying to repair one. Please. The desperation in his voice is all too familiar. I shouldn't press my luck, but there could be an opportunity here. Is this your ship? I ask. 
I thought the Sherry burned all the Kaylee crafts. Not all of them. Are you trying to escape, Fatan? Travel to another world? It's just a stupid drawing. He snatches the paper from me and tucks it under the others. Blazing stars, I've upset him. I expect him to fly into a rage, but instead he shrinks into himself, his shoulders slumping. His eyes drop back to my application. There's no mention of your father anywhere. Oh, I've done it now. He'll be looking for any excuse to reject my application. No, I say, but I have a letter of recommendation from the late mathematician Razia Yeriazidan. Amon's parting gift. My name's not what it used to be, but it still might open some doors. It means little without your father's permission, he says. Another new policy. When he sees my horror, he softens somewhat. I'm sure a simple note will suffice. My stomach twists. You couldn't have mentioned this yesterday? I didn't notice, he says. There must be another way. Baba will never grant me permission. I can already see the hatred twisting across his face when I ask him, spittle flying as he curses me for being a stupid, useless woman, just like your mother. The young man taps his lip with the tip of his index finger. I suppose a similar note from your husband, along with a certificate of marriage? A burning lot of good that does me. My anger ricochets off the walls, multiplied a hundredfold in the close space. He flinches at my outburst, and I immediately regret it. I close my eyes, take a calming breath. This is just another equation to balance, another proof to solve. I turn the problem over in my mind. For a moment, I consider bribing him. But the only money I'm carrying is for Baba's supplies. I can't risk his wrath or our budget. Without... Some form of permission, I'm afraid there's little I can do. He lowers his voice. Have you thought about forging your father's signature? I shake my head. If the admissions council were to discover my deception, I could be imprisoned like Mama, condemned to waste away. No, whatever the solution, it has to be within the confines of the law. I gather my papers, mumble a farewell, and turn to leave. The man calls after me, but I hardly hear him as I step out into the unrelenting sun. I return home. I hide my application. I cook. I clean. I take care of customers while Baba reads. I wait until he's good and drunk to broach the subject. Past the point of anger, but not so far gone he'll forget this come morning. If the admissions council questions him, I want him to remember. I want him to have no choice but to say it's his handwriting, his signature. He'll never admit to being inebriated. He's a good citizen. He obeys the law. Of course he could lie to them. Tell them I forged the whole thing. His word against mine. But he knows that if I'm thrown in prison, his business will crumble. The money and the arag will dry up. It will be Mama leaving all over again. He'd be a fool to risk that. Even so, I've miscalculated. When I ask him about the note, he doesn't threaten to whip me. He doesn't throw a single bottle. He only says in a detached voice, If you ever mention your education again, 
I'll turn you over to the sherry. I'll tell them you stole from me, that you've been spending my money on spirits. I'll show them the evidence. I'd laugh were he not deadly serious. I respond with the only leverage I have left. And when I'm gone, Baba, who will mix your medicines, look after your ledgers, cook your meals? He scoffs. You think I can't find another woman to replace you, like I did with your mother? Only then do I realize that I no longer recognize the man in front of me. He resembles the man who once called himself my father, who bounced me on his knee, who loved and supported Mama. But something inside that man cracked the day the sherry invaded. He retreated into a bottle, sought solace in assimilation, as if dressing, speaking, and acting properly would somehow protect us. But not even his bits and his fists could control Mama. When she left him, taking me with her, whatever had cracked inside of him must have finally snapped. I should have seen it sooner. I retrieve my papers and head for the door. By the time the man who called himself my father realizes what I'm doing, I'm already out of the house, letting my feet take me where they will, though I'm careful to avoid any streets where a concerned citizen might wonder why a woman is out alone at this hour. When I reach the archives, the door is locked, and a crescent moon has risen over the university. I curl myself against the cold stone of the building, pull my dress close to ward against the desert's wind, and fall into a fitful sleep. I dream of Mama. The sherry claimed the moon sways to a tune that is not her own, she tells me, in a voice like warm honey. Blown this way and that by the breath of the heavens, they say she weeps every time she rises, her grin a bitter mask to hide the pain within. But I say the moon smiles, despite her melancholy, for she carries a fire deep inside, a fire that cannot be quenched, a fire that will one day outshine the sun. I wake to a shadow looming over me. It's the young man, Farhud, silhouetted by the sweltering dawn. I stagger stiffly to my feet, hands flying to my head to make sure my rusari hasn't slipped off. I'm soaked with sweat and cloaked in dust and doubt. The antithesis of the self-assured woman who strode into the archives two days ago. Morning. He manages to look both amused and concerned. Let's get you out of the sun. He unlocks the door and ushers me inside, the room pleasantly cool. I watch him unshoulder his satchel. He sits at the desk and begins pulling out papers. You're going about the calculations wrong, I say, without preamble. I'm past the point of watching my tone. I don't know what you're talking about. He places a protective hand over his drawing. I can help you fix them. He sighs. No, you can't. The sherry destroyed all the books on Haleycraft. Believe me, I've looked. So you are repairing a ship. He makes an irritated noise. I didn't say that. But even if I was, I don't see how you'd be able to help. The School of Mathematics offers a class on the arithmetic of astralchemy. And how do you plan on taking that? He asks. Do you have a note from your father? No, I say, but I won't need one. You're going to write that note for me. He freezes like a hare who spotted the hunter. 
You don't mean... You said a note from my husband would suffice. If you marry me, I can attend the university, and I can help you fix your ship. I... I don't know a thing about you, he says, tongue darting over his lips. You don't know a thing about me. I know you want to sail the stars like Sarouche. I dig my fingers into the folds of my dress to keep my hands from shaking. It doesn't need to be a real marriage. It just needs to last long enough for me to earn my degree. He doesn't meet my eyes. And then what? Do you know how the Sherry treat divorced women in this city? I know. I say, remembering the day they came from Mama and the triumph in the eyes of the man who called himself my father when they dropped me at his door. But if you're leaving Vatan, you could take me with you. He looks up at last. And what makes you think living with me will be any better than wherever you are now? For all you know, I'm the kind of man who'll mistreat you. He's right, but it's a calculated risk. Are you? I ask. He shakes his head. No, but I won't be a burden, I say. I can cook for you, clean for you. I can even help you with your classes. I don't care about any of those things. Then what do you care about? His eyes hold mine with an intensity I've not seen since I first interrupted him drawing. His finger traces the outline of the ship. When he speaks, his voice is barely a whisper. I want to find someone who sees this world as I do. Someone to share in my dreams. I let the folds of my dress slip from my fingers. It's the dreamers who survive, I recite. The ones who gaze at the moon and see purpose rather than impossibility. The hint of a grin flits across his lips. I would take you further than the moon. Further than Sorush ever sailed. I hardly dare to breathe. Is that a yes? The moon shines proud and bright on our wedding nights. In true Votani fashion, we're married in the desert, under the stars. There's no time to gather all the items for a proper souffre, so we make do with a patterned cloth spread across the flattest patch of sand we can find. We place a small mirror, a bowl of rose water, and a few lonely coins on top. Farhad wears his finest kaftan, which appears to be his only kaftan. His hair and beard are as unkempt as ever, and he's sweating profusely despite the night's chill. His parents sit beside him, their faces warm and welcoming. They've already told me how delighted they are for me to join their family, though I suspect they're even more delighted that someone is willing to marry their son. I wear a simple dress and matching rusari. My lips are tinted with crushed mulberries, my eyes shadowed with sorme, the cosmetics borrowed from my soon-to-be mother-in-law, just like the clothing, since retrieving my own was out of the question. There's no one to sit beside me, for which I'm both relieved and heartbroken. I always imagined that if I married, Mama would be there, looking on in quiet disapproval. More than once she warned me against tying myself to a man. But she never said anything about using one to escape another. The officiant, or kashish, or whatever he calls himself, utters some words in Sherry about love and trust and faith. I hardly hear him. His language is not my language. His faith is not my faith. 
Like the rest of the ceremony, his only function is to force the university to recognize our union. I don't cry when Farhad gently takes my hand, or when we share an awkward kiss for the benefit of his parents. Instead, I gaze up at the moon. I imagine her tearing free of the sun's greedy grip and setting off on her own. I picture her, out among the stars, sailing wherever she pleases. I don't cry. I smile, because Mama was right. The moon is free. And one day, very soon, she'll be the brightest light in the sky. And there you go. Big thank you to Peter. Peter, thank you so much indeed. Hey, it's lovely to have you on the show, sir. Thank you indeed. And Torres, that was just an awesome narration. Honestly, thank you so much. Please come back and do some more. That would be absolutely lovely. Thank you both. So we know what time it is now. It is looking back at genre history. Ims! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I would like to share a juicy science fiction tidbit with you that came up during my class this semester. You may know I have been teaching a new graduate course for master's level students on the genre of dark academia. And one of the texts that we covered is the brilliant 1967 novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock, by Joan Lindsay. Joan Lindsay was an Australian author who lived from 1896 until 1984. She enjoyed a lifetime career in the arts as a novelist, a playwright, an essayist, and a visual artist. And her publications spanned 70 years but her most famous work came in 1967 with the publication of Picnic at Hanging Rock, and it's now considered to be one of the most important works of Australian fiction from the 20th century. She set key events of her novel at a real location, Hanging Rock in Victoria, Australia. She also bookended the text with a disclaimer whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves, as the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900, and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. And she also ended it with an invented news article. And by doing these things, Lindsay crafted a sense of mystery that led readers to debate whether or not the events in the novel actually took place. She crafts such a sense of believability. It has the same verisimilitude as other great works, a kind of mockumentary style or found footage style of literature. And the week I covered this novel, I called it Dark Academia as its own mystery because Picnic at Hanging Rock is its own mystery. This work over the decades has launched detailed investigations into the history behind it. Was this story based on a true story? And some of her publishers worldwide even claimed she attended the school, Appleyard College, depicted in the novel, which she didn't because the school didn't exist. There's even been confusion in researchers. For example, they note the times are wrong. 
St. Valentine's Day in 1900 fell on a Wednesday, not a Saturday, as depicted in the book. And Easter Sunday was on April 15th that year, not March 29th. So what is she doing by changing the dates? That kind of thing, right? These deep dives into little details, trying to figure out if this is in fact factual or not. There have been books published full of theories about what happened in the novel Specifically, at the beginning of the novel, when Appleyard College takes its students to Hanging Rock to have a picnic on Valentine's Day, well, three students, Miranda, Irma, and Marion, and one teacher, Miss McGraw, take a walk up to this geological formation and never come back. And all of these theories that fans have spun and debated and published, have turned the story into its own X-File, in a way. In fact, there's tourism to Hanging Rock these days, including cosplay tourism, which people dress up like it's 1900 and climb up shouting, Miranda, Miranda, like a character in the novel. You can Google Picnic at Hanging Rock Cosplay and see this. And the books had Later life and adaptations, too, including a 1975 Australian film directed by Peter Weir, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and that has become a central film in the new wave of Australian cinema. And it also led to a TV adaptation, Picnic at Hanging Rock, an Australian six-part limited series It's appeared in different places in different countries. Here in the U.S., it was marketed as an Amazon Prime original. That's how I saw it. And that starred a Natalie Dormer as Mrs. Appleyard, the head of Appleyard College. Okay, so what is Picnic at Hanging Rock? I love this definition. Elle Magazine Australia's Mahalia Chang said in an article on May 8, 2018, Half mystical science fiction, half psycho-thriller, the plot of Picnic at Hanging Rock has intrigued audiences since the book's first release in 1967. That's a great (laughs) description right there. Picnic at Hanging Rock is several things. It's also Australian Gothic, and as such it relates to a couple of other categories associated with the Australian Gothic. And, interestingly enough, I would argue, subverts them as well, like the Imperial Gothic, in this case a work set in the British Empire from the English perspective. The Imperial Gothic is known for making the indigenous other, that's characters, landscape, reality, seem either mystical or degenerate, barbarous, and or alternately seductive and threatening. It also fits the post-colonial Gothic, which is storytelling that's very aware of what is home, in this case the English, not the Australian home. The idea being here that the English are supposed to be remaking England in Australia if they are adhering to the imperial project. And what is not home? The unfamiliar foreignness of Australia. And also noticing where those categories collapse. But what's so interesting about how Lindsay is involved with these categories and subverts these categories, is that really what she's doing is is offering a critique of imposing a shallow Englishness, which she reads as artificiality and conformity, 
on the very different, more liberating reality of Australia. I'm going to quote scholar Susie Gibson here. She says, Picnic at Hanging Rock's powerful evocation of a primordial nature, shaped and carved throughout the ages, foregrounds the limits of white expansion. Appleyard College's destruction by fire reveals how its built environment can be easily demolished. If anything, Lindsay's tale reminds us of our own impermanence and how the hubris of colonialism can be crushed by nature's elemental force. Yes, yes. In fact, I think we are seeing in Picnic at Hanging Rock a depiction of an Englishness imposed on Australia and Australia physically, literally rejecting that. It is clearly a mystery novel. The blurb on the back of my Penguin Classics edition sums this up. It says, The haunting novel about the disappearance of three boarding school girls. And hey, I'd like to add a teacher. Don't forget the teacher. Don't forget Miss McGraw. In an interview with Joan Lindsay by John Taylor in 1975, Lindsay confirms that it is first and foremost a mystery. She says, quote, Well, it was a mystery as a mystery, and it remains a mystery. If you can draw your own conclusions, that's fine, but I don't think that it matters. I wrote that book as a sort of atmosphere of a place, and it was like dropping a stone into the water. I felt that story, if you call it a story, the thing that happened on St. Valentine's Day, here she's referring to the disappearances, went on spreading out and out and out in circles from that first thing that happened, and it went on, and it affected so many lives, end quote. And this is true. I think just collapsing Picnic at Hanging Rock to disappearances is a mistake because really the disappearances are the first mover in a process that continue, or a pattern rather, that keeps expanding, keeps claiming lives, keeps destroying. It's, it's a remarkable story. And here's the science fiction part I want to talk to you about. Her editor gave her a great suggestion when she first submitted the manuscript, and she followed it. Lose the last chapter. The missing final chapter does not tie the story up neatly in a bow and resolve the mystery fully, so it was always going to be a mystery and be mysterious, no matter what. But the final chapter is a clear indication of what genre this work is was meant to be. Losing it makes the novel much more mysterious, and it leaves little clues here and there that are unresolved, which has fueled so many fan theories along the way. Why they see drifts of rosy smoke or mist, why there's the beating of far-off drums, why such strange things happen when the schoolgirls and their teacher go up on Hanging Rock. But what I want to do right now Spoiler alert, (laughs) you may want to skip this if you haven't read the novel, because the novel works incredibly well without it. But I would like to talk about the missing final chapter, which makes this work clearly a work of science fiction. The missing chapter was published, as requested by Joan Lindsay, after her death, in The Secret of Hanging Rock, which was first published in Australia by Angus and Robertson Publishers on St. Valentine's Day, the day that... All of the action kicks off in the novel, in this case in 1987. 
it is science fiction. In that final chapter, the missing girls who have been missing for the length of the novel, essentially, are on the rock, at the top of the rock, and a mysterious woman in her underwear shouts at them. And the girls don't immediately recognize this old woman. But there are plenty of hints that is Miss McGraw, for whom time has worked differently. She's the teacher who also went missing on Hanging Rock. And she seems to know them, they do not seem to know her, because time, again, has functioned differently, has worked its way differently on her. She faints and is later revived by one of the girls, who loosens her corset in order to let her breathe. The rest of the girls then throw their own corsets off the cliff, a kind of liberation, a kind of rejection of conformity, and a rejection of oppression. But they point out that these corsets stop in midair, and they cast no shadows. Miss McGraw suggests that they are stuck in time. And she, and I should note Miss McGraw, teaches mathematics, she adds, anything is possible unless it is proven impossible, and sometimes even then. And then a hole appears. And I'm going to quote here. It wasn't a hole in the rocks, nor a hole in the ground. It was a hole in space, about the size of a fully rounded summer moon coming and going. She, that's Miss McGraw, saw it as painters and sculptors saw a hole, as a thing itself, giving shape and significance to other shapes, as a presence, not an absence, a concrete affirmation of truth. She felt that she could go on looking at it forever in wonder, and delighted from above, from below, from the other side. It was as solid as the globe, as transparent as an air bubble, an opening, easily passed through, and yet not concave at all. End quote. Now she's the mathematical one, she's the scientific one, she's the teacher, she's the one who represents intellect and curiosity and reason. And I love this line so much. It says, She had spent a lifetime asking questions, and now they were answered simply by looking at the whole. End quote. How much do I love this? I do, because this recognizes Miss McGraw as someone who was not part of Appleyard's problem, Appleyard College's problem. She was eccentric and reserved, but curious and clever and deeply engaged intellectually. And that's something she recognizes particularly in the character of Marion, who shows us here so eager and curious to be a younger version of the same kind of hungry, analytical mind. There's a touching moment when Miranda... Another student acknowledges Miss McGraw's intelligence. She says she can see your brain quite distinctly. And McGraw in turn praises Miranda's understanding, saying, I can see her heart and it is full of understanding. So both brain and heart here are extolled. Miss McGraw enters a crack in the rock, this portal-like thing, and Marion and Miranda follow. Those three go through, but the hanging rock, like Australia as a kind of actor here, a character, stops Irma from going through, and she is later found unconscious with no memory of what happened. It is acknowledged that the crack in the rock is a time warp, and the two missing students and the missing teacher, they are together in another dimension. All of this connects to 
Joan Lindsay's larger ideas in the novel of time as fluid with currents and eddies and movement. And it also fits more largely with the critique that Lindsay suggests, the critique of Appleyard College itself about the Australian Gothic story of colonialism. Appleyard College is not a place that rewards intellectual curiosity. It's not a place that rewards individualism. The institution unravels. Mrs. Appleyard's attempts to impose a rigid sense of conformity, trying to remake England in one school in Australia, represented by everything from corsets and gloves to watches and clocks, but the corsets come off, and that's a really important feature of that final final missing chapter, too. The watches stop. They don't work. Australia rejects what Appleyard College stands for. Memorize, don't create. Accept, don't question. Be concerned with what appearances look like, not how things actually are. It's a very, very poor pedagogical model. And we have lots of reasons to believe that Mrs. Appleyard, who founded the college, is in fact a long-term con artist, and the college itself is a scam. But in this final chapter, we see the intellectually curious, the open, the creative, the analytical, rewarded. And we see that there is an answer to the mystery, even though that answer raises more mysteries itself. These missing persons did not die. They did not wander off and start a new life somewhere else. They, in fact, went through a time war. And perhaps they are some time else. And perhaps their adventure has just started. So I'm fascinated by the novel as it is published, Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1967. But I am also fascinated by the missing chapter that was excised from this book that was later published 20 years later in 1987 in The Secret of Hanging Rock. It's a chapter that leaves us with delicious new questions while confirming that Picnic at Hanging Rock is, among many other things, also a work of science fiction. I hope that you found this of interest And I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. There you go. There you go. Amy, thank you so much. It's lovely. I just get excited with that. Yeah, we don't. We never even see each other. You know what I mean? It's just all over over the internet there. But Amy's big hugs, big hugs, lass. So that is show six hundred and ninety nine. Put to bed. Hope you enjoyed it. Do, do support Starship Sova, PayPal, Patreon. I know, God, I know funds are tight for everyone, but man, it's going down. Honestly, our accounts are going down. So if you could kind of just monthly donate, that's all, monthly donations, just a little kind of trickle feed. If everyone just trickle feeds a little couple of pounds, couple of dollars into the, the accounts, that would be fantastic. Links on the website to any way you want to. Until next week, just like I say, good night. From me. Thank you for listening. I don't get much 
running to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out